So um, thank you, Karen, for describing our Purim, upcoming Purim celebration. And you'll be distributing the readings, right? Excellent. And I brought some today. So who, who was here last week? Recording. Yeah, I'm recording. Yeah. Who was here last week? Okay. So I'm, I'm going to recap a little bit. Um, and then I want to spend mo- the bulk of our time actually looking at the story of Esther, spending some time actually reading the text, some of it anyway, and just getting a feeling for it. But last week we, we spent uh, the whole class exploring all kinds of the deeper meanings of Purim. And that class is available online. Uh, you can listen to it if you want. And some people have been listening, which is really neat. But what I've been thinking about since last class is two of the themes that we explored uh, in depth that have just been bubbling around in me. The first theme, which is so important, is the uh, story of Amalek. Amalek is the embodiment of evil in the Torah. They, Amalek, even though it is a, um, a tribe, like the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amalekites, early, early, early in, in Jewish uh, uh, thought, Amalek becomes an archetype, right? Just the way you could say that Egypt becomes an archetype in Jewish lore and Jewish teaching, because Egypt is no longer a physical place on the map, but the place of constriction and confinement. Uh, and its Hebrew name, Mitzrayim, means, cons- con- you know, narrows. Uh, Amalek also becomes an archetype. And we're talking now in the language of myth and spiritual journey, no longer in an historical or geographical context. Right? We, the Torah leaves geography behind in a certain way to get to its deeper meanings and uses the landscape of the Middle East as actually a map for the, the spiritual journey. So, so Amalek represents evil in that Amalek attacks the children of Israel from behind and picks off the weak and the helpless. This is the antithesis of everything the Torah is trying to teach us. That's why it says more than any other mitzvah to care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger in your midst, right? And not to oppress the worker and all the things, all those, that, that through line in the Torah that the universe is asking us to care for everyone as a creature made in the image of God, then evil is when humans get unhinged, get disconnected from that directive and start treating people simply as means to their own ends, as objects of gratification, as obstacles rather than as priceless individuals. Right? That, in the Jewish tradition, that is evil. And when evil goes all the way, human beings get reduced to numbers. Right? And that's why Hitler is called, in the Jewish tradition, a descendant of Amalek. That's how, in Jewish talk, you refer to Hitler. Hitler, Yimach Shmo, may his name be erased, like Amalek. 
So with that understanding, we are now dealing with a battle of the forces of light and darkness, right? A battle of good and evil. And so when the, uh, when the, the hero and the villain of the Esther story are introduced, the, the male hero, Mordechai, is identified as a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, who, from whom also descended uh, King Saul many, many centuries earlier, who did battle with King Agag, the descendant of the king of Amalek, uh, and didn't finish the job. Sam, Saul, King Saul didn't finish the job in the book of Samuel. And so Amalek is still a, in the world. And the Purim story, Mordechai is identified as a descendant of Saul, and Haman is identified as a descendant of Amalek. And this is what we were discussing last time, but I, I think it bears repeating. And so, the, uh, and therefore, of course, Esther, as Mordechai's niece, is also a descendant of um, Benjamin, Ike, Saul. So, you know, uh, that is to say that uh, the reason there is so much rejoicing at the end of the Purim story, after all that destruction, which is what makes modern ears go like, what? Is because this is a parable of the final destruction and elimination of evil in the world. That's what I'm coming to understand. Uh, and that it says, and for the Jews, there was light and honor and joy and gladness. And I was thinking about the, the influence of Persia on this story and uh, Zoroastrianism in particular. Uh, Zoroastrianism, which was the, the religion of the realm of the Persian Empire, is a religion that posits a battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, the forces of good and the forces of evil. And that is the cosmic battle going on in Zoroastrianism, and I certainly don't know much about it except that. Uh, and that, our, and that so Zoroastrian aligns themselves with the great force, whose name I forget, who is, the, who is the creator of all and the creator of light, right? Uh, so I was thinking that I bet that there was a Persian influence on this story for the Jews in also making it a almost cosmic battle of light versus darkness. And in the end, Amalek is defeated which would explain why the rabbi said that in the world to come, all the festivals will not be celebrated anymore. In other words, when the Messiah comes, this is, this is, this is rabbis imagining the perfected world. They say only Purim will be the only holiday that we still celebrate. Because in Purim, light, e the evil is vanquished, Duality, therefore, is eliminated. On that day, God will be one and God's name one, right? So, the world will be repaired in the image that God created it in. And so, it's almost a celebration of duality disappearing and unity reigning forever and ever. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why the rabbis say that in the world to come, Purim will be the only holiday we have left. We won't need Yom Kippur anymore, right? Because we, we won't be divided anymore. We'll just be celebrating. And that related to the teaching I brought you about the 50 cubit high gallows. And you missed this last time if you weren't here, but that Haman erects a gallows that's 50 cubits high. And in the Jewish tradition, 49, there are 49 gates of anything, you know. And the 50th is mamish, you know, is beyond the beyond. It's when, it's where there's no more gates to walk through. We're just one with God. And um, so uh, that's why, again, it would say, Purim is the time when you can't tell the difference, you should get so high, up to the 50th, you can get so high that you can't tell the difference anymore between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai, which in Gematria, as it turns out, add up to exactly the same number. So it's almost like a secret of the universe. Our blessings and our curses, on some level, there's a place beyond it all. We've said that uh, Rumi quote, the poem, over and over. Uh, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That's the poem. You know. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. So here in the world of rightdoing and wrongdoing, we have a job to do, which is to be on the side of rightdoing. And yet... We can imagine a universe beyond that. And we've touched that place each in our own lives. Each in our own lives has sometime been out in that field with someone where self and other, right and wrong, those choices dis disappear. And we're in a taste of paradise, right? So uh, that's, that's the understanding of that teaching. Uh, Stu? I was just thinking that, you know, they're, they're, we're all evolved from other animals. And when we look at the animals, there are animals that do exactly what Amalek was doing. That's their survival. They right. would attack a whole bunch of deer, yeah. and the weak and the old were the ones they would be eating. On the other hand, there's also a, the other part, which is like the bonobos who don't fight as much. So we are, we are in a balance between those two. The I it, and the finally the I thou, which says we're all together and we shouldn't be fighting each other. So it's interesting that that's there. I'm sure that people at that time understood how other animals act. They watched predators all the time, right? They weren't that separated from them. They had to protect their flocks from and predators. The predators were doing only what's in their They understood that that's the way the natural world was organized. And yet, they, they wrote a psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? That was based on their experience. What's a good shepherd do? A good shepherd looks after every animal in the flock. And so the, the Torah's idea, our ancestors' idea of the human factor was that we have the capacity to transcend the... the um, the, the attacking of the, of the, the weak. The attacking of the weak. We have that capacity. Now can we manifest it? 
And the Torah is given to us in order to give us the instructions we need to manifest that higher human nature. Now, the people writing Torah hadn't observed Bonobos, so it's like, thank God, there may be other animals who we can learn from now. But the point is, the predatorial instinct, which we have as well, needs to be surmounted and transcended. Rather than tribal, expanding tribalism. Rather than anything. Rather than any of the human impulses that reign supreme much of the time, our instructions are to transcend that. And that's Torah, right? Our instructions are radical. The radical instruction is every human being is made in the image of God, therefore you have to treat them as a divine um, presence. Right? That's a radical, mind-bending yeah. instruction. It's why I, one of the reasons why I care so much about Judaism being continued to be perpetuated in the world. Yeah. One of the ways in which we train ourselves to overcome that um, predatory reptilian instinct is with the tefillin. Ah. Uh, the tefillin, the wisdom eye controls the primitive brain, mm. and the impulse of the heart drives the actions of the hand. The symbolism of wearing tefillin. You put a sign upon your hand across from your heart and a sign between your eyes so that you remember to do my commandments, right? Not the reptilian brain, but the, the frontal cortex, not, not the, the strength of your arm, but your arm uh, dictated by your heart. Yeah, all of that is part of the symbolism. You could say the civilizing symbolism. We want to civilize ourselves, uh, uh, but with this dramatic and radical idea that hadn't existed before in the world that this is our offering to the world, that every human being is made in the image of God, and therefore even the weak and the powerless have God's loving gaze upon them. And that if we don't follow through on that, we are going against, as it were, the will of the universe. It's a beautiful teaching. It's not self-evident, right? We have to, like, believe it (laughs) and practice it. Right? It becomes self-evident to me when I actually go out to that field and meet somebody there. Right? Then I see, I see them and I know that they're, a, they're an infinitely valuable mystery. Well, when we go out to the field and we meet the person we wish was there. Or we meet the person we wish wasn't there. Uh-huh. You know, the, the, everybody is not including the mother-in-law. Including the mother-in-law. <laughs> That's right. So that's what we do, right? Our best selves, we're always searching for the humanity of the people that we have the hardest time with. Uh, And again, this is not, this is a vision of paradise. The real world requires us to continue to determine right from wrong and to work for the right because it's a mess, right? So this is not like, why can't we all just get along? This is the instruction to A, head in that direction. Yes, Michael. So a um, a corollary of and blessing, the Buddhists like this example too, if you look closely at the relationships that are loving relationships in your life, very often they keep you from the kind of wisdom that you need to acquire through the stimulation of your enemies. Ah, that your enemy, or shall we say your opponent, might stimulate something in you that otherwise you wouldn't awaken in yourself. Yeah. And 
friends can put us to sleep in a way in which is not good. <laughs> yes, men. Yeah, we can all agree. We can just all agree all the time. Karen? Isn't like Satan really the adversary? Right. So not, That's right. It's not a, that was if, right. Satan becomes the embodiment of evil. However, Satan in the biblical, you may, you may remember this, you may not know this, uh, Satan is not a proper name in the Hebrew Bible. It's a uh, uh, descriptive. It means the adversary or the prosecutor. Um, and so Satan is, the, Satan is that force that stimulates us, you know, that challenges us, that says, are you going to test us? Satan works for God in, um, in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Satan is part of God's court. And um, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? And so Larry Kushner wrote this whole piece about um, uh, um, the snake in the Garden of Eden working for God. Uh, of course, right? You know, because if we weren't stimulated with those challenges, we could never become the people we're meant to be. So again, this isn't a vision of a placid, um, uh, static... Uh, that's not the world we live in, but we still can picture this moment when it's all light. We're, we're blessed with those experiences sometimes. Are we teaching that to the children? I'm trying. But, uh, 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 <laughs> but that particular, I mean, that's a, that's, that changes everything. Say more. If, say, if, the, if, the, if the snake... Is, is is working for God, that's, I mean, everything that follows is different. Yes. Because, because we're not dealing with good and evil in that way. It's certainly not evil to learn to be a human being. It's certainly not evil to to have sex. It's certainly not evil to, to uh, look at the book of knowledge. I mean, everything changes. From that moment on. Yes. Yes. So I, I, let me just say, uh, my, my response to that is that it depends on who the listener is, how old they are, and how they're ready to look at the world. So, but no, what I'm saying, it's the same story. And I think a storyteller is feeling their way with each person they're telling the story to, to hear what level of understanding that person's at so that they can receive the message, right? Because that message might be, a little kid might say, what do you mean? He's the bad guy. And then you have to tell the story for them. And then when they're older, you say, remember when you used to think that person was the bad guy? I got a secret to tell you. So all I'm saying, Carol, is that, is that it's the same story, but it's going to be received Based on the, so the, you're saying that by the time the child hears the story here, they've known it someplace else? Is that, is that no, I'm saying that everyone, every child and every adult's at a different developmental level. And some need a story with a bad guy so that they can be the person who stands up against the bad guy. And some people are ready to hear a story where the bad guy is there to, to test them to see what they're made of. It's, it's the same story, and you just got to tell it in the way that that person's going to feel empowered. The monster in the closet 
has to be a monster in the closet for, for a while. I don't know. That's yeah. that's my experience in sto- as a storyteller. No, it's a, but but it's not the. Started there that it wouldn't change everything if if we started from that place. Now we're not the only person dispensing that information, but right. it just seems to me that that's immense. Well, and, and what I'll say about that, and then Pauline, is that this is a holy conversation, right? This is what they call in the Jewish tradition a machloket l'shem shamayim, a dispute for the sake of figuring out the, the greatest good. It's a, it's a good thing to think about and argue about. Pauline? No, I was going to say, developmentally, what you're asking kids to hold on to with that concept, and I think even for adults, because it's a real slippery slope, it's one thing t- to say, if you would have said to me 20 years ago, you know, the, the, every bad thing that happened is there for a really good reason. And it's really, she would have punched, punched you in the face. In the face. Or I heard. Yeah, what, one another. So, but what I'm saying is that it is, I think, a slippery slope that requires a wisdom of discernment that. It's taken in steps gradually, because there, because you have to be able to say and, and not live in black and white. I'm going to prepare an argument. Okay. <laughs> Hello. So in the heavenly court, in the rabbinic imagination, it's not just Satan, the adversary. There's also the Katagor, who is the defending, um, the defense attorney, and they're doing this up in heaven. Um, Betty. If, the, if you ask some people if the color black is in the Bible... They'll say, no, there's no, there's no black. Yeah. That's what I compared this to, is that suddenly you open the book and you find many places where there's black. And they never, you never saw it before. Mm-hmm. You, you moved up to readiness to see another level. Right. So here's Purim. That, uh, yeah, go ahead. But what I really wanted to ask you is where do you find that article by Larry Kushner? <laughs> oh, it's in one of his books. Um, uh, I'll have to look for it. I think it may be, but he talks, he, he, he writes in a very funny way, and he talks about the, Adam and Eve have finally gotten back to the garden, and they say to God, why'd you do that? And who else is the snake? And God says, you mean Sammy? Come on out, Sammy, and meet them. <laughs> and it's this great telling. I will look for it. I, I know I can, it's in one of two books of his that I'm thinking of. I'll have to look on my shelf. You can Google. Well, okay, okay, let's see. It's either in uh, Book of Miracles, which is a book which is uh, spirituality for young people, or it's in, um, I don't a Larry Kushner, there's a Larry Kushner reader. I, I think it's in the Book of Miracles. So. Anything you read by him will be wonderful. That's true. All right. Very good. So that actually swings us back to Purim because Purim is a, a really, it's, the story is a black and white, like good guys and bad guys, no holds barred story. Uh, and it really offends many People. <laughs> that's and, one thing in its favor. Right. And uh, 
um, I'm coming to understand it as if if I it can't be taken literally. It just can't. It, I mean, you can, but it's it's not meant to. This is about the ultimate triumph of light over darkness. The story, and as uh, you know, one of the interesting things that I was sharing with somebody. Uh, uh, oh, at our meeting uh, yesterday, uh, Tuesday, wow, where did the days go? Um, is that, um, is that one of the things the, sto- the story of Esther does is it shows that the emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. right? It's a story that makes fun of power. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how uh, power... People who, who wield great power um, are really, really um, uh, vulnerable to ridicule because power is ridiculous, right? And um, uh, one of the things that the story of Esther does, not just the story, but the way Purim is celebrated, is that it's the opportunity we have every year to totally ridicule, thumb our noses at, power. Um, and when we do that, we actually break its spell um, uh, for a little while. And that is another way of transcending. So it's through parody and ridicule and thumbing your noses and that the emperor really has no clothes. It's like uh, um that's what the holiday's for, whereas next month, at Passover, we are taking it very seriously, mm-hmm. right? Because we have to. So it's almost, <coughs> like, it's almost like this is preparing us for Passover. By, I, I don't know exactly how to say that. Um, but I've been, I'm more and more taken by the, by the central place this story has in the whole Jewish narrative and why the rabbis give it such pride of place when they talk about it in the Talmud. Because something's going on here uh, where finally, finally, Amalek is eradicated. And finally, there's just light and joy and honor. And that's why we have to celebrate this day. Um, Stu? You know, there's an interesting parallel between Passover and Purim is that at the end, in Purim, there's a mass slaughter of all the people who were with Haman. Mass That's right. Slaughter. And also in Passover, the firstborn of every family, of everything, was killed, no matter who they were or what their viewpoint was. Right. So there are actually, as we discussed last time, many parallels between the two stories because Esther and Moses enter the palace and uh, have to hide their identities and have to go to the king and tell the king to let the people go. There's a lot of interesting parallels between the two stories. Uh, yes, Amy? I guess I'm a little confused when you say that evil was eradicated. Because evil wasn't eradicated. I mean, maybe in that, in that context of Purim, but evil certainly... Purim's a one day a year where it's all happening at the same time, right? This is not an historical progression. It's all, the, the bliss 
of evil being eradicated is a moment of consciousness that we can experience when we occasionally meet someone out in that field. And you and me, um, us and them, it's like, it doesn't matter anymore. That's the moment when evil is eradicated. Um, So it all coexists. So then you can come back from that experience into the world and see through the game of good and evil and see, see there's, a, um, there's a person there. There's um, that, you know, I guess I've talked about this before. The, uh, the, the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic uh, that uh, is filled with wars. And I mean, if we treated the Mahabharata, if we trashed the Mahabharata the way we trashed the Torah because there's all the violence in it, it, it has like 20 times more than the uh, Torah. And in the Mahabharata, everyone is playing a role. This is really the Hindu view of things. Like, the warrior is the warrior because that's their role in this lifetime. And the bad guy is the bad guy. because that. And they're all in a play, essentially. When I saw this at BAM, t- by... Uh, oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, I never forgot it. Peter, oh, Peter, Peter Brooks. Brooks. A nine-hour production. Wow. It was an amazing experience. And after all of it, and all of it, all the Sturm und Drang and everything, the last scene is, they're all drinking tea in heaven, wearing white robes, saying, well, that was a good play. We did that well. Well, we did our parts. And so there's this perspective we might be able to get where we're playing our part. And our part, if we're Jews, is on the side of good on the side of seeing the human everywhere we go, seeing God's imprint in all of creation. And, but then we get totally caught up in the drama that is our human situation, right? Shall I just say it? Watch your, watch, watch your body. Trump. <laughs> right? And like, right? So, how do we... And how do we train our consciousness to be totally engaged in this, but also to be somehow outside and detached, but not detached in a disconnected way, but... Is that making any sense? Yes. Yes. So so Purim, that's why a holiday every year, a holiday every year, where we're supposed to make fun of the rich and powerful, um, it, gives, it, give, it might give us a little sense of relief and lightness as we move into the Passover story, which is our mission. That's our mission, to go from slavery to freedom. It's like, but that's just gonna, that's just gonna do you in if you don't manage to also have this kind of, the word would be levity, in addition to the gravi- gravitas of the situation, you want also some levity that but you bring. Passover, you have un-levity. That's right. On Passover, you have unlevity. No, that's good. That's very good. Um, so that's why I'm reflecting so much on what this might add to our consciousness. Leaven our experience. Yeah. Yeah, Susan. So for me, 
it's like reminding me of what I call the psychic mishkan. So I have this idea in my mind of what a mishkan actually is. And it's this container, it's for the dwelling of God. So it's this container which can also be the thoughts that I hold about my relationship to things in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's changed over the years. I think this thing about being 40 is really a, I think that's a really good kind of an age to step into something like this, different before before that. Different things need to happen for development. And after 40, and, I, and to me it's very transpersonal what you're talking about. It's beyond the personal, but not detached in a way where, you know, I'm not connected to it. It's what dreams are all about. Bringing all of this in. And our unconscious in a dream will, will remind me when I remember them what it is that I need to focus on in order to be in that psychic mishkan to hold uh-huh. Trump and whatever. Yeah. So keep our sense of humor. Purim says, keep your sense of humor. I'm thinking about the Dalai, but not just, I'm thinking about the Dalai Lama. I heard this great interview with him. There's now starting to be a big um, to-do in the Tibetan Buddhist community because he's 80 years old. And he's not, he said, I don't think I'm going to reincarnate. Yes. It's like, and he said, and he said, well, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, well, you know, people are worried that I'm going to die. Well, everyone, soon I'm going to say bye-bye. <laughs> and it's like, it's like he, yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah. he, he has, here's a guy who's lived his whole life battling the Chinese Communist Empire, right? Yeah. He, he's like, he is a serious dude. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a fighter. But he's doing it without ruining his life. Mm-hmm. You, you understand what, I, what I'm he saying? He doesn't want the Chinese to pick up the next one. It's not only that, Stu. Okay. It's not only that. I think he's a thoroughly modern person who may think that the time has come. Okay. You know, we don't know exactly what he's thinking. But you heard, talk about the emperor has no clothes. You probably read this story, though. The Chinese government said, we are the only ones who have the right to name the, to, uh, name the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama. That's a fun story, New York Times story. Yeah, like, do you see how ridiculous that is? Here's a communist regime that denies God, denies reincarnation, denies the validity of the Tibetan lineage, but says that they have the right to choose the next one. That's a real Purim story. That's a Purim story. <laughs> and if you read Gail Collins today, uh, in the New York Times, on her quiz of did, what did Trump say, it's a Purim story. Yes. It's like, I appreciate Gail Collins for keeping me laughing through yes. this. Okay, so that's that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, that and Esther is that the story of Esther is that. Uh, Carol, I've just I've been worrying of late. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> that. We've been laughing at the news so much. I really hesitate to say this because it's because it's very politically incorrect. We've been laughing at the at the news so much, and me as much as anybody else, maybe maybe even more. That we stop noticing 
how serious everything is getting and how dangerous. And that at some point, and I put I'm here, at some point, we have to have laughed and confront Pharaoh. Right. And there's, and we don't ridicule Pharaoh. We really don't. Now, I think that's bizarre. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking now, Pharaoh is evil to us. Pharaoh represents all that stuff. But Pharaoh somehow is just a whole different energy. And I just love that. I mean, this thing that I've been thinking about so much is just like, you know, playing out and, and, and has been playing out my whole life. And it's uh, some we have to release and let it go and laugh and make fun of it and right. ridicule and all that kind of stuff. But then at some point, we have to be able to say, okay, now what? Right. And that's why I would say Purim, then Passover. Mm -hmm. I think that's just that's why I would say that. Uh, uh, first Karen and then Pauline. Oh, that's just fascinating. I don't, see, now I'm thinking Pharaoh is on the same team as the snake. Pharaoh is an adversary. Right. Well, that's true too. Cain exactly. is not an adversary. But I, I'm a like, and that is not an adversary. That's a dip, whole different character and a whole different relationship. I, I, I think on another level that's absolutely true. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yes, the Zohar which is the mystical, uh, medieval mystical interpretation of the Torah, actually uh, has this amazing teaching where the Parsha in Shemot says, Bo el Faro, which usually is translated, go to Pharaoh. But what does Bo mean in Hebrew? Come. Come. God says to Moses, come to Pharaoh. And the Zohar asks, wait a minute. Where's God? And they do this whole thing about how God is somehow there with Pharaoh, um, uh, saying, you have to come into this place, Moses, in order for your people to be liberated. I'm here too. It's an amazing teaching. Pauline? So I, I was going to say something along the same lines. I know that um, in one of the English ends narration of the... Um, Megillah says, oh, we are all Mordechai, we are all Esther. It doesn't say we are all Haman, we are all... Um, and I'm thinking that when we read the Torah, we think about often one of the levels that these are all pieces within us, that we do have a piece of Pharaoh in us, we do have a piece of Moses and Miriam and the whole book, <coughs> but not in Purim. In Purim, as, uh, as Karen said, we're talking about something very, very different. It's like we have to take it out of our pocket sometimes in this kind of container to actually look at it and know that this is different. Um, I don't think it's the same thing of looking at all those pieces within ourselves. Uh -huh. Well, that's beautiful. And last week I brought a teaching from Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev who said that when we're busy eradicating Amalek, we better look inside ourselves to see where Amalek dwells in us. Um, so it's, it's yes and, yes and. Um, it, it, there's not going to be a final answer to this. this. The point of this is, to my, in my opinion, this is a story that is actually, a, 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 I would say, a myth. 
It's on the mythic level where archetypes, you know, are being deployed uh, and we get wrapped up in, the, in, in that mythic story. It's not an historical tale. There's no evidence that the story of Purim is an historical tale. And then when you read it and you realize how intricately it's plotted and how you, you recognize that it's a piece of literature. Uh, it, it's a turnabout everywhere. Rob, did you want to say something? No? Okay. So, what, in fact, uh, let's uh, look at it. So, I have two versions here. The translations are a tiny bit different, right? I still have... They're pretty one, much the same. One says eunuchs, one says... Sir. One says eunuchs, the other says chamberlains. I like the eunuch version because the king... So, yeah. Now, um... What's that? You started out by saying you want to recap. I think we covered it. I think we covered it. So, what um, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, uh, points out in his treatment of Purim. Oh, oh, yeah, Arthur's. Oh, yes. Arthur sent a great letter yes. out. Yes. Rabbi Arthur Waskow said that this election campaign has to be Purim. Best Purim, yeah. best, best Purim yeah. spiel ever, he said. Uh, it was, except it's not funny. Except it's not funny, but again, his point was that we can be serious and still keep ourselves uh, uh, sane by making fun of the absurdity of the, those who strive for power. Comedy and tragedy always... Are Comedy and tragedy always woven together. So, Arthur points out that the story of Esther actually has two threads of the powerful getting hung by their own petard, whatever that is. Um, anybody know? I actually looked it up, and let me, it's the... Something on a sailing ship. Oh, right, right. It's a mess. It's, 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 it's a sailing it's term. That's right. It's a stick. And, and the, the um, water would be impaled on the stick and not just hang there. Oh, hung on your own. Okay. I was actually looking up sailing terms and realizing that there are dozens of them that we use all the time that I have no, no idea we started on. Anyhow, that's another story. Um, so there are two stories of turnabout. One is Ahasuerus' treatment of Vashti, uh, which we read about in chapter 1. The other is Haman's treatment of the Jews. And both stories play out in parallel in the Megillah. Because as we'll read, we'll read chapter 1, and you'll see what happens to... Uh, uh, there's thunder again. Um, How is Haman's... Haman is hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordechai. Ahasuerus kicks out his queen, and then they send out a decree, which we're going to read about, 
that all women must obey their husbands, and then he does everything Esther tells him to do. <laughs> and yeah, it's like that's the other joke that's in there. That uh, and it's the same story. Everything about this story is about the powerful being exposed as ridiculous. So let's read a little, uh, just so we hear the text. Who'd like to read in chapter one? Uh, Ruth, please. And it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from Hodu to Cush over 127 provinces, that in those days in Shushan, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and for all his servants. The army of Persia and Medea, the nobles and officials of the provinces being present, he displayed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. 180 days. 180 day party. Okay. All right. That's how the book starts. And when these days were fulfilled, the king made a week-long feast for all the people who were present in Shushan, the capital, great and small alike, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of white, fine cotton and blue wool, held with cords of fine linen and purple wool upon silver rods and marble pillars. The couches of gold and silver were on a pavement of green and white and shell and onyx marble. The drinks were served in golden goblets, no true goblets alike and royal wine in abundance according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to the law without coercion, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Uh, let's stop right there for a second. The drinking was according to the law without coercion? It's like, what is going on here? It's a this description is so over the top, yeah. right? You're in the land of fairy tales now. You just have to like. I can see the Disney version. Well, it's it's made. It's almost like stage directions, yes. right? You yeah. almost can see the set. Right. I want mm. you to understand that this is a piece of literature, uh, and we're meant to be absorbed into it the way you would into a story. Uh, and everyone's drinking like as much as they want out of golden goblets provided by the king. Yeah, keep going. Oh, boy. Yes, boy. Vashti, the queen, also made a feast for the women in the royal house of King Akashverosh. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he ordered Nehuman, Viseta, Carbona, Bigta, and Avakta, Zetar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who attended King Ahasuerus to bring Vashti the queen before the king, wearing the royal crown, to show off to the people and the officials her beauty, for she was beautiful to look at. But, but Queen Vashti refused, refused to come at the king's commandment conveyed by the eunuchs. The king, therefore, became very incensed, and his anger burned in him. 
Then the king conferred with the experts who knew the time. Okay, Yodea Itim. Itim means um, astrology. Right? His astrologers. Those were his experts, like Nancy Reagan's. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. This is Purim. It's like you make fun of this stuff. I'm, I'm telling you, it's like, that's Purim. Lighten up, everybody, and because uh, it's going to be hard again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay, go on. Oh my goodness! Is that snow? Right. Then the king. Oh, bird. look at that! It's uh, it's snow or rain? Hail! 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 Hail. Oh, wow! 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 It is hail, isn't it? It's, is it bouncing off the roof? Or is it rain? Oh, it's rain? Wow, okay. Oh, 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 the, oh, she's reading some more. Then the king conferred with the experts who knew the times, for such was the king's procedure to turn to all those who know law and judgment. Now that's funny. It sounds like he has wisdom. I think this is is also a Jewish commentary, a Jewish satire on the ways of the empire. Right? Keep that in mind also. Because the Jews are one of these 127 provinces. Right? They're in exile. They're like... We know, you know... Unless you're in the halls of power and need to be playing the game, you see the absurdity of it. You see the posturing and the everything, the ex- excess, the absurdity. Do we know approximately when this was written? No. Uh, uh, guess is it was written after the Persian Empire, and that uh, a good guess is that they would never do this to comment on the people actually in power, but would retroject it to somebody who wasn't around anymore. Yeah, right? once upon a time. Once upon a time, yeah. Why did he have to confer with anybody? <laughs> to find the right time to do something. He has, he has seven eunuchs, he has seven lawyers. He, uh, he, it's a, so. He's, he's the king. <laughs> but he had to do it according to the, the astrologers where when the planets were in the right place. Oh, and for me also, but for me also, if you think of the rhythms of fairy tales, and he spoke to his seven advisors, and he spoke to his right, and it's the like time this is was right, and the okay. So, but so we can't be too rational about it because <laughs> it's it's we're we're in a but it's we should ask those questions, but also remember that there's a rhythm of the storytelling going on here too. Keep going, Ruth. This is cool. Those closest to him were... What verse are you in? I forgot. 14. Okay. Shesar, Admasa, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, Vimemuchan, the seven officers of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king, and who sat first in the kingdom, as to what should be done legally to Queen Vashti, who was not obeying the bidding of the king. Oh, God. Akash Verosh, 
There is that wonderful thing of asking the eunuchs what to do with the queen. Right. Well, there's also, it's clear, I mean, the eunuchs are in charge of the uh, harem, and it's like that's the only way you get close to the king is, I mean, this... But, oh, oh there was one thing I wanted to mention. Um, I was reading in, there's in, in some, com- some Jewish commentary on, on Esther, back in verse 10, the first of the seven eunuchs' names is Mehuman, Mehuman, which has the same letters as Haman in it. Mm. And so they said, that's the same as Haman. In other words, they're saying Haman was recommending the same treatment to women mm. as he was to the Jews. It's just an interesting little feature. Does this indicate that she was supposed to be wearing only the royal crown? Okay, so again, this story has been, wor- has been expanded upon. So all that says here... Um, is that Vashti should be brought before the king in her royal crown. Uh, right in verse 11, 11, wearing the royal crown. But it doesn't say anywhere in here that she should be only wearing her royal crown. That's what the, that's what the Midrash on the story says, that he wanted her to come naked to dance before. But it doesn't actually say that in this story. Is, is Tarshish the same spelling as the city of Tarshish? Uh, yeah. Because they're the seven officers of Persian Medea, so maybe these are places as much as anything else. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, as to what should be done legally to Queen Vashti for not obeying the bidding of the king Akashverosh, as conveyed by the eunuchs. Memuchan declared before the king and the ministers, it is not against the king alone that Vashti has sinned, but against all the ministers and all the nations and all the provinces of King Akashvera. Why? The word of the queen's deed will reach all the women Ah. and it will belittle their husbands in their eyes. Mm -hmm. For they will say, King Akashvera commanded that Queen Vashti be brought before him, yet she did not come. Yes. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's deed will repeat it to all the king's nobles, and there will be much disgrace and anger. If it please the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written into the laws of Persia and Medea, and let it not be revoked, that Queen Vashti may never again appear before King Akashverosh. You're fired. Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and let the king confer her royal title upon another woman who is better than she. Ooh, that's Donald Trump. Yeah. I'm telling you, he's the embodiment. It's dangerous what's going on, and he's the caricature of the authoritarian. Right? And we want to puncture that on Purim. Mm-hmm. Okay? Did you get that, that one, uh, that cartoon showing that, or whatever, that old piece, that all Trump's wives were immigrants? Yes. Yeah. Again, right, That's validating that immigrants will do work that Americans won't? <laughs> <laughs> did you see the, um, did you see the cartoon? This is not, this is uh, not about that, but, um, uh, the cartoon in the New Yorker a couple years ago where Moses is leading the people uh, through the Red Sea and there are two people muttering behind him. Um, 
he's a good leader, but I don't think he supports Israel enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, okay, we're getting in the form of spirit here. Okay. <laughs> the title, and the king's decree which he shall proclaim will be hers throughout his kingdom, for it is indeed significant that all the women will respect their husbands. Aww. By decree, noblemen and commoner alike will respect their husbands. Will respect their husbands, noblemen By and decree. commoner alike. Mm -hmm. The idea pleased the king and the ministers, and the king did as Memuchan had advised. He sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its script, and to each nation in its language, saying that every man shall be master in his home and that he speak the language of his own people. I'm not sure what that second part means, but so now I want to point out to you something. Just remember, this is a book in the Bible. Okay, this is one of the books in the Torah. It might also be making fun of other parts of the Torah. Mm -hmm. So just keep that in mind. But also, I mean, what we never say is, and they've all been drinking for... Yes. Right? Oh, that That's too. Right, they're all plastered. They're all... Um, you're doing a great job reading. Uh, will you keep reading for us today? Do you mind? Once upon a time, after these events... Chapter 2. Achar Varim Ha'ela, which is biblical talk for, you know... After the net, what happens next? After. Yeah. After these events, when King Ahasuerus's wrath had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed upon her. So the king's attendants advised that beautiful virgin girls be sought for the king. What does it mean he remembered Vashti? He says, oh, I forgot, I needed a wife. I, he missed He missed her. Suddenly he realized he yeah. didn't have a wife. Yeah, right. In other words, <laughs> the day up. after when he was sobered up. He right. said, oh, yeah. Where is she? <laughs> yeah. Now what am I going to do? Now what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't his idea to do all that. He seemed to go he along. Well, well part of the joke about the king, part of the joke about Ahasuerus is, he, is he never makes any decisions himself anywhere in this story. He, Haman, these guys, Esther, he's, com he's completely malleable. And he's the, he's the king. Well, a lot of people put money into a super pack, so he has to respond to all of them. Right, right. What? I never noticed this. He's a young king. It's the third year of his reign. Oh, I never noticed that either. It's the very beginning. It's one of the first. It doesn't mean he's young. He's a young king. Oh, he was in the third year. Yeah, when we did this, when we did our poem spiel 10, 12 years ago, I was, I was King Ahasuerus, and I was George W. Bush, yes. and Haman was Dick Cheney <laughs> in his bunker. And, uh, you know, it's like it never changes, everybody. So you're all, these are archetypes, and they're funny, even though they cause a lot of, a lot of harm. So we, same play, I was Mordecai, and I came out with a... Right. I had, had some, You'd taken a fall, Jerome. I had taken a fall... I had all this discoloration on my face. And somebody asked me, what happened to your face? I said, oh, I went hunting with Dick Cheney. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, we had a lot of laughs on that. That was a good year. Okay. Did we hear anything more about Vashti? Or Nothing, no, not a word. Okay. Not a word about Vashti. Vashti is gone. Let beautiful virgin girls be sought for the king. 
and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, and let them gather every beautiful virgin girl to Shushan, the capital, to the harem, under the charge of the Haggai, Haggai, eunuch of the king, custodian of the women, and let their cosmetics be provided. <laughs> I'm so glad we're just reading this so you can see how it runs here. Okay, keep going. Then let the girl who finds favor in the king's eyes become queen in Vashti's stead. The plan pleased the king, and he acted accordingly. Now, this next line is in bold because customs for how the Megillah is read on Purim have developed. And in this one, everybody sort of stands up and reads it together. Shall we? Yeah. No, we don't have to know. <laughs> I'll do it symbolically. There was a Jew, I'll do it for everyone. There was a Jewish man in Shushan, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, son of Yair, son of Shimei, son of Yishai, Okay, now for, for those in the second century BC, E, listening to this, they know what this lineage means, right? right. We've, had to re, we've had to rediscover it by sort of over time learning more and more about our tradition. But that, that identified him as in an important way. Go ahead. Yeah. Who had been exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles and had been exiled along with <laughs> Yephaniah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had sent into exile. He had raised his cousin Hadassah, also called Esther. Isn't it interesting that Esther has two names? Yeah. Um, so her Jewish name is Hadassah. And her, her, her um, Persian. Persian name is Esther, again, which may come from Ishtar, which, who, the chief goddess of the Persian pantheon, might also be pointing to us the word astir, which means I will hide. So Hester uh, is hiddenness. And so Esther is also related to the Hebrew word for hiddenness. Uh, to be hiding, to be, uh, so I think find that interesting. Well, what about her name being in the next uh, phrase? It says, uh, given that name for because she didn't have a father or a mother. Oh, uh, let's see. No, he had raised his cousin Hadassah, also called Esther, oh, for she had sorry. neither father or mother. Sorry, sorry. So uh, that's why Mordechai has been raising him. Interesting, raising her. Interesting that she's an orphan. That's yeah. an interesting part of the story, too. For she had neither father nor mother. The girl was shapely and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his daughter. Now, when the king's order and edict became known, and many girls were gathered to Shushan, the capital, under the charge of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the palace under the charge of Haggai, custodian of the women. The girl found favor in his eyes and won his kindness so that he hurried to provide her with cosmetics and meals and the seven maids that were to be given her from the palace. He also transferred her and her maids to the best quarters in the harem, all while Esther did not divulge her race or ancestry, for Mordecai had instructed her not to tell. Every day, Mordecai would stroll in front of the harem courtyard to find out how Esther was faring and what was he done with her. All right, let's wait a minute there. Uh, wait a minute. 
Esther is a, a Jewish virgin who her cousin Mordechai sends Pimping into the as a into the hair to be a harem girl for the king. It's like like Abraham with Sarah. Oh, that's right. Abraham all over the Old Testament. They're always pimping the women. Okay. Almost every story. They were taken. Well, anyway, okay. So, and she does not divulge her race or ancestry. Okay, let's keep going. Now, when each girl turned came to go to King Ahasuerus, after undergoing the prescribed 12-month care for women. How long it took? 12 months. 12 months. She got a wife 12 months. Only then would their period of beauty care be completed. Six months with oil of myrrh. And six months oh, perfume and women's cosmetic. Okay, SD Lauder must have had the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cosmetics. A lot. Her name was Esther Lauder. Yeah. Esther Lauder. That's right. With which the girl would appear before the king. She would be provided with whatever she requested to accompany her from the harem to the palace. In the evening, she would go to the king. Oh, God. Ah. Oh. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem under the charge of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, custodian of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king desired her, oh, whereupon she would be summoned by name. So she had to, they all had they, to spend the night with they her. All, they're all yeah. virgins. They all spend yeah. the night with the king, and then they get... Right. And they spend the rest of their life in the, in, the in the harem and don't get called back again. I think this is how it was in yeah. Persia. But then why would Mordecai want his cousin to yeah. enter this Well, world? that was the whole question in the beginning that we were talking about. Exactly Whether he what wanted her or she was taken. Well, what were you going to say, Laura? Oh. No, I, I, that was what no. we were talking about. That was what we were talking about before that's always troubled me about the story. Yes. And, and a lot of other stories in the Old Testament. That yeah. There's this, I mean, and I've forgotten that it was so clearly that she was a concubine. Concubine, right. You know, so she was... Property. The king's whore, basically. Right. One of. One of many. One of many, yes. One of many, and that her uncle sets her up for this. Right. Besides, this is a good thing for yeah. right. to happen to his niece. For an order. Right. So, excuse me. I was sure that Esther would be picked. It doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, this is pretty horrible right. behavior. Yeah, yeah. Right. And this was, the, and that's the way it was. Um, and so what do we do with this story now? But, good question. You know, that's interesting because that's the way it was means, well, that's the... the that's how women were treated. Yeah. But then you have in the beginning of the story, you know, Vashti doesn't get executed. This isn't Anne Boleyn. She doesn't get her head taken off for defying the king. Nope. You know, and she has become this kind of feminist hero. Vashti, for oh, defying yeah. the order, yeah. Yeah, and there's stories and, you know, elaborations on what happened, you know, that Vashti was playing cards with her friends. And, and, <laughs> what a bother, and then what happened to her after. 
They could have gone back to the Harry. Uh, uh, Karen, you want to respond to that? Well, so to you, I have a question. How come two minutes ago, this is all a story, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's the way it was then. Right. Oh. Yes. It's all story, and then I'm saying that's the way it was oh, then. That's right. So I have to flip back and forth all the time. Uh, I don't have to, but I do. We don't know. I mean, it's a story. And I think taking on the indignity of the concubine is disingenuous in regard to the whole bigger picture. Well, Solomon had a huge... Hold on, I want her to finish. Yeah, you say that, say it more. You weren't listening to what she was saying. I mean, all of a sudden, there's a little outrage here about the, how the women are treated, whereas up till now, we're saying, this is a story, everybody. This is a story, and the, these are archetypes, and this is, this is literature. And now, all of a sudden, oh, yeah, that's the way it was back then. And so you're pointing out where we just got hooked. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And we, that's where we can get stuck. Although well, but was, I, I didn't... Yeah, we can get stuck there, but okay... I'm observing us getting hooked at that point in the story. That doesn't mean it's invalid for us to get hooked. That's not what I'm right. saying at all. And the fact that there's stories, similar kinds of stories like that. Like the, the Arabian Nights. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yes and no. Um, uh, the, the, this is like beyond the beyond of anything that's in the Torah. And, the, even, and women in the other Torah stories, even though they, their status is not as, um, they're not liberated from the patriarchy, as it were. They're agents of their own fate in many, many ways. So, Karen? I would say that there's definitely a um, reference to, to Sarah, because one of the first things that yeah. we see at the beginning is that there are over 127 provinces, and that was Kaya Sarah. Oh, yes. Sarah lived to be 127. Yes. And then it says there are 180. And that was the Abraham. Abraham. Isaac. Oh. I think Isaac. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. Isaac would be 180. But the 127, to me, immediately, I see that number, I say, oh, Sarah. Uh, and, it, and Isaac. Oh, I, cool. And so before the second sentence is read, I already have Sarah. Oh, wow. That's something. Yes. Okay, so the people writing this already have the Bible as their uh, template. And Abraham, as we know, I mean, that, and that's this motif where Sarah, Abraham is oh. Sarah, right. and they, they end up... Abraham treats Sarah as his, says, she's my sister. Right. You can have her. You can have her. And, yeah, and she goes into Pharaoh's harem, and then it happens again. Oh, this is very interesting. Thank you. I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, and then Isaac does it again. So, um... Uh, Sarah, so this is also playing on the stories of the Torah. Um, Sarah's 127, there are 127 provinces, so the Torah reader hears that. And, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. I'm just fascinated by this. Um, so we're hearing about, we're hearing takeoffs on Bible stories here. We never know what actually happened to Sarah in that house. We didn't get that story. So this is a midrash. So maybe this story is also making fun of the Bible stories in some way. Um, and just one second, Bob, because that reminds me also of the description of um, which I, I didn't I didn't discover this. I was reading about it. Um, the description of the king's palace 
hangings of white cotton, chalet, blue wool, fine linen, purple wool. So it's all the, uh, these are all the language that are used to describe the Mishkan as it gets built in the Torah. And the, and the garments of the priests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Another reference back to the Bible is that both Mordechai and Esther are descendants of Benjamin. Yeah. Benjamin is the second son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Right. And Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Oh, so then uh, that would make Esther also an orphan whose mother has died. And you know what else it's making me think of? Is that Sarah is Mordechai's cousin, right? His Abraham's, Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. And so when he says she's my sister, uh, he's not totally lying. Uh, And then, uh, and everyone's perplexed by this story anyway in the Bible. And then in the Midrash on Mordechai, saying it's my cousin, is that he actually had married Esther. And so there's all this, so there, there's all this sexual confusion and uh, all this borders, bordering on incestual uh, <coughs> activity and innuendo that maybe, and if it wasn't intended, we can pull it out anyway, is the, the Jews making pointed comments about their own story in the context of, of the Purim story. That's really interesting. Did Solomon Stu- have a large harem? Oh, and Solomon, thousand harem. wives. Concubines. Solomon, a thousand concubines. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So that may be in the background, too. Okay. Do you want to say anything else, Laura? All right. Helen? So maybe this is just their opportunity to um, make this a little more lurid, you know, the description of the, to make it more interesting. Well, Hollywood. I would say not just to make it more Hollywood. I'm saying that based on the tone of Purim as it's given to us in the Talmud, it's an opportunity for them to make fun of everything. Including? Including ourselves, including the Torah, including the emperor, including men, including, you know. Including what goes on inside the harem. Maybe people yeah, hear that. Yeah, all of it. It's a lot of fun. All of it. I think it's a farce. I think it's a parody. But it's a farce and a parody that has some serious themes in it. Uh, it's not just a farce and a parody. Let's read some more. Where are we, anyway? 15. And when the time came for Esther, daughter of Abihail, uncle of Mordechai, who had taken her as a daughter to go to the king, she did not ask for a thing other than that which Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, had advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tevet, in the seventh year of his reign. Huh. So that's four years later. Four, four years later. Years later. Wow. Yes. What? But the, the Vashti thing happened in the third year, so maybe it took him a while <laughs> to rem- miss his wife. I don't know. So <laughs> we need we <laughs> Yeah, who knows? And she won his favor and kindness more than all virgins. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in Vashti's stead. That's a good rhyme. 
Dr. Susie. Then the king made a grand feast for all his ministers and servants, the Feast of Esther. He lowered taxes for the provinces and gave presents befitting the king. And when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther would still not divulge her ancestry or race as Mordecai had instructed her. Indeed, Esther followed Mordecai's instructions just as she had done while under his care. Well, what does that mean that the virgins were gathered for I don't the know. second time? I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe they were, uh, uh, there was going to be another feast, so there was another time I, to... I don't know. Yeah, more virgins? Maybe. And they did that every time they had a big... And if they were gathered for a second time, presumably yeah. they were no longer virgins. Um, no, no, new ones. We don't know. <laughs> In those days, while Mordecai sat at the king's gate, Bigtan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs from the threshold guard, became angry and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The matter became known to Mordecai, and he informed Queen Esther. Esther then informed the king of it in Mordecai's name. The matter was investigated and found to be true, and the two were hanged on the gallows. It was then recorded in the Book of Chronicles before the king. Interesting. Okay, so... reference to the gallows. Yep. But also, it's setting up a plot for later. Uh, this is a very intricately plotted uh, yeah, story. Yeah, necessary. Okay, let, let's, let's read chapter 3, because now Haman gets introduced. After, so keep going or skip to Yeah, three. keep going. To After these events, when King Ahasuerus' wrath had abated... No, 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 you, you read that already. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman... <laughs> son of Hamdata, the Agagite, and advanced him. He placed his seat above all his fellow ministers. All the king's servants at the king's gate kneeled and bowed before Haman. (laughs) For so had the king commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel or bow. The king's servants at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Finally, when they had said this to him day after day, and he did not listen to them, they informed Haman to see if Mordecai's words would endure, for he had told them that he would not bow because he was a Jew. Well, that's it. He it says that's in the brackets. Let's see what the English, the Hebrew says. Uh, because Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. It doesn't say that he would not bow because he was a Jew. And that's actually, there's nothing that says Jews can't bow down to potentates, right? That's not bowing down to idols. That, that's the story we tell about it. It's, I just, I, I wonder, wonder what's going on here. Okay. When Haman saw that, saw that Mordecai would not kneel or bow before him, Haman <laughs> was filled with wrath. But he thought it contemptible to kill only Mordecai, for they had informed him of Mordecai's nationality. Haman sought to annihilate all the Jews 
Mordechai's people throughout Ahasuerus' entire kingdom in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus' reign, 12th year, a poor, which is a lot, was cast before Haman for every day and every month, and it fell on the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, so a poor means a lot, a lottery, cast oh. lots. And that's why it's called Purim. And one of the comparisons that the rabbis make between Yom Kippur and Purim is they say, why, why, if they can read Yom Kippur as a day that is like Purim, Purim, Yom HaKippurim, the day that is like Purim, that's a whole incredible thing that goes on. But one of the ways it's like Purim, and this is really interesting, is that how does the scapegoat get chosen on Purim in the Torah? Also by lot. By lot. Uh, one scapegoat is for God, and one is for Azazel. And it's like there's a lottery on, Pur- on Yom Kippur. It's like that's a whole incredible discussion to have. Could, uh, yeah. Could you explain to me if there's a lottery? I thought that um, Haman said that, that all the Jews were going to be killed. And now yes. he's saying that there's going to be a lottery to for choose the date, the day on which they're going to, to be choose killed. the date on which it's going to happen. Oh, still they're all going to be killed. That's right. Okay. Thank I, you. Yes, Why Ken. didn't he consult the uh, the, the astrologers? Because you know? he's not the king. Well, maybe, or maybe throw a lot. Maybe, maybe the idea of casting lots and of consulting astrologers is all part of the science of uh, you know that that all goes together, or maybe. Um, I was thinking about, uh, I was reading about how the, uh, in the Talmud, we learned that on, um, uh, this is a real aside, on the 13th of Adar, which is now called the Fast of Esther, there was a Hasmonean feast uh, called Nicanor Day when this general Nicanor had been defeated by the, by the Maccabees and they made it into a feast day. And the fact that, there's, that this gets replaced by a fast day is yet another indication of how much the rabbis hated the Hasmonean uh, monarchy. Maybe this is even a, maybe there's even echoes of that. I mean, it's so hard for us to know what people were parodying a hundred years ago let alone 2,000 years ago. So Jonathan, there's also a, a teaching about Yom HaKippurim, the difference between Yom Kippur and Purim. Is that Purim. On Yom Kippur, pious Jews, impious Jews dress up as pious Jews, and on Purim, pious Jews dress, dress up as impious Jews. <laughs> <laughs> Did you catch that, everybody? I, I like that a lot. I didn't think it was a joke. Haman said to King Akashverosh, there is one nation scattered and dispersed among the nations throughout the provinces of your kingdom whose laws are unlike those of any other nation and who do not obey the laws of the king. It is not in the king's interest to tolerate them. Oh. If it please the king, let an edict be issued for their destruction and I will pay 10,000 silver talents to the functionaries to be deposited in the king's treasuries. The king removed the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamdata, the Agagite, persecutor of the Jews. Oh, hold on a minute there. Uh, yes. 
this is the charge that every anti-Semite makes about the Jews. Yes. yes. From time of Pharaoh mm -hmm. to today. Fifth yes. column. There's a strange people that ain't like us. Mm -hmm. yes. Look out. We ought to be very wary of them. Fifth column. Yep. That's right. To this, every, the whole thing happened because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. Yeah. So that, that's what precipitated the whole killing of all the Jews. Is that logical? It's a story. I, I, I mean, I want to keep remembering how it, it's like this is a story about the good guys versus the bad guy, the good, and it's going to build to a climax. Uh -huh. uh, Haman, Mordechai is not willing to bow down to Haman. Uh, Haman, he wants to kill all his people. I'm not going to kill all of you. Um, now, there's so many levels to take this on. I mean, for me, I always just see current, you know, current events, you know, uh, constantly as I as I, I read this. It's just like they're they're like pouring through my head. Who's putting 10,000 silver whatchamacallits into the coffers of who so that which, which immigration laws and what and who? And please. And who's like, Plus échange. You know, it's like this is how it works. Um, it's kind of like, it's amazing to me to, not just, this, not just that this is like the description of the Jewish condition, you know, from. To this, to to our very day, but that is a description of the human condition, also about who puts who puts the who puts the millions and millions of dollars into whose account so that which legislation does or doesn't get passed and doesn't change much. Oh yeah, I want to watch House of Cards. House of Cards instead of the news. And the nation is yours to do with as you please. So there's the king again. This is the king. He, first he listens to an advisor saying, good idea. Then he listens to Haman and says, yeah. That's a good idea too. The best Congress money can buy. The king's scribes were then summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and all that Haman had commanded to the king's satraps and the governors of each province and to the nobles of each nation was written to each province according to its script and each nation according to its language. It was written in King Ahasuerus's name and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent with couriers to all the provinces of the king to annihilate, murder, and destroy all the Jews, young and old, children and women on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. The copies of the edict were to be proclaimed as law in every province, clearly to all nations, so that they should be ready for that day. The couriers hurried out with the order of the king, and the law was proclaimed in Shushan, the capital, then the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Shushan. One thing they keep coming back to. They sat down to drink while the city is in turmoil. Let's let's pause there for a second. Um, hmm? 
Like being in Nepal, can you sit down and drink? Oh. <laughs> um, I am thinking about a bunch of things. Um, one is how chilling it is uh, to read this story for me, to know that someone arose in the 20th century who wanted to do this and then tried to do it. It's like, what is going on? Um, and I don't have the answer to that, everybody, but it's, kind, it's strange being a Jew in that regard. It's very, very strange, our role in the human drama. It's like, um, Laura? Yeah, and there's something interesting here because much earlier on in the story, um, Mordecai has already said to Esther, Hide it. Hide it. Don't let them know who you are. Pretend you're them. So something else, even though I know it's a story, <laughs> something else is going on here. That's, there's a piece that's, there's many pieces that... Yes, there's a lot going on in this story. But there's something going on here even before the altercation between... Mordechai and Haman. Right. Right. It's like, it's, it's, it's like a prem, what did you say? It's a premonition. Premonition, I don't know what the right word is, but, and, yeah, so the Jews are already a people apart. It's like they're in exile and, mm-hmm. Isn't this, there's so much in here about the, in the, the Passover story. First of all, yeah. the fifth column idea, didn't they say yeah. that then they'll rise up somewhere? Yeah. Yep. So that was the warning, like, in Egypt. To the, yeah. to the mm. Pharaoh. And, and then this whole thing going through, finding people, it was like, we're going to go through and find the firstborn. That's right. So this is sort of the Passover That's story. right, that's right. Furthermore, look in verse 12. The king's scribes were then summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The first month in the Jewish calendar is the month of Passover, Nisan. So, and the 13th day is the, is the uh, fast of the firstborn, I think. So the, the fast of the firstborn before Passover begins. So the readers of the story hear that because they know what date that is, just like you're hearing it. So yes, this is uh, some Fun house, mirror, that's not exactly what I mean to say, take on the Passover story. Um, wow. And then they sit down, so this is happening on Passover, and then they sit down to drink. Drink. Oh, listen, here's what I think. It's almost 2 o'clock. I think we should celebrate Purim next week, and then I think we should come back the week after. We'll have time and read the rest of this yeah, since we yeah. started. Um, and just keep, keep, because uh, on when we hear it on Purim, there's going to be a lot of loud music going on. Might miss the story. So, are, so now, um, all we're supposed to do is, we're supposed to mitzvah to hear the Megillah, that's right. Are we doing a Megillah reading and a, are we doing it twice? Are we doing one that's just a Megillah reading? No, no, we're doing it once. Uh, oh, you came in late. On Wednesday yeah. evening at 7 p.m., yeah. the... Barrels, Hotsi Totsi, Donnerstick, something or other, Klezmer Band. Yeah. 11 pieces conducted by Karen Levine um, is going to accompany our Megillah reading. It's, it's a music, it's a soundtrack and all kinds of uh, good stuff. And is that, the ta- is that when we're doing Shushan's Got Talent? We're not doing Shushan's Got Talent. 
the program committee canceled it. Oh, I didn't get so well, the program the, committee canceled itself. Oh. The program committee there canceled no itself. Program. Well put. Yeah. yeah. There is no program committee to well, run Shushan's got uh, We were going to have a talent show on Saturday night. We're not. Because the organizers couldn't pull it off. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. The organizers with a <laughs> the disorganizer. <laughs> Betty? Our dilemma. Our human dilemma. Is that? <laughs> now there's a spiritual koan. Why should we be so happy that we have this dilemma? That's right. Very good. I think because we shouldn't go through life being miserable because uh, the dilemma is there regardless. <laughs> Pardon me? And look where it will get you. What will get you? Right. So if we totally rejoice, we can transcend the dilemma. There's that nice, that's a nice word because it's got that bifurcated quality to it. And once a year, let's transcend the dilemma and... Uh, Enjoy so ourselves. Maybe Mordecai really knew about all of this and set it all up. Maybe. Yes, maybe Mordecai is. Who it's knows? Maybe everything is as it should be. Uh, in that not. strange way, where in chapter 4, Mordecai will say to Esther, if you don't do it now, it's going to happen somehow. Exactly. Mm. Uh, so why not Take do it? Do Take it. the reins and do it. Mm -hmm. And in Esther, in the story of Esther, there is no mention of the name of God. God is hidden in the book of Esther. We, can we discern the divine directive, the, the flow of it through the opaque sort of uh, human action scene? Yeah. That's what the rabbis have a big time talking about Purim and Hanukkah. Why they elevate Purim and Hanukkah to holidays, even though they're not mentioned in the Bible. Mm. And what the rabbis say is because, the, and this is from 2,000 years ago, they say, well, what? Purim is the Bible. But Purim is not yeah, in the Torah, 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 in the Torah, sorry. Right, Purim is not in the Torah, and Hanukkah is not in the Torah. But the rabbis have a lot to say about this, because, and I'll close with this, because they, they say, miracles ended when prophecy ended at the completion of the Bible. So now we have to discern God's hands through human affairs. And the ability to have the faith, and this is the way the rabbis put it, the ability to have the faith to move forward, even if you can't see God's presence in what's going on, makes these even higher than the Torah holidays. Mm, wow. Isn't that an amazing teaching? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad I remembered that. Mm. And who's that teaching from? It comes in rabbinic, the it, the, in the Talmud, the rabbis are really, and then it really gets expanded on by the Hasidic commentators, but it's Talmudic, and I'll look for the sources and bring them next time. Uh, the Talmudic sources, they're, they're pondering uh, these strange holidays where, where we don't see God's hand mm. and they elevate it to where humans have to become the divine agents mm. 
And Esther has to trust and do that even though she says, if I die, I die. That's the greatness of Purim, is that God's presence is not evident to us, and yet we perceive. Right, and Esther doesn't, Esther is just like a mold until this point. Right, this Esther point. becomes a, per, a, a an, person, an agent. There's yeah. no Esther before this, really. You're right. So we'll, let's keep going in two weeks. Thanks, everybody. So no class the 24th. No class the 24th. Goodness. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I